0: Amen. Welcome to Aria, everybody. Uh, Glad that you are here. Thanks for being patient with us about that. And uh, glad that you're here tonight. Um, I am sorry that uh, as we become a basketball school, uh, I do want to figure out how to have large group the same night as basketball. We had no room flexibility of time and day and place, and so we're just going forward. But I am glad that you're here um, and you spend your Wednesday nights with us. Uh, we're going to continue our series uh, in the book of Colossians, looking at this little four chapter book in the New Testament, where Paul writes a letter to this little and young church where his main point, said over and over and over again, is Paul saying that Jesus is enough. That Jesus is all that you need, that he's better than you think, that the life that we all long for and are looking for is only found in Christ alone. Uh, and tonight... He is going to talk about what the gospel says about us. What the gospel says about Jesus' people. Uh, These three verses are almost a biography of Christ's people. And there's good news in it, and there's hard news, but it's all beautiful. So let's read together just three verses. I believe what's uh, on your bulletin, the the citations are wrong, but the the words are right. We're going to start in verse 21, so you have the right words. Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 21. And you who were once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He, Jesus, has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Amen. the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever and never. Let me pray and ask for God's help. Uh, Jesus, uh, these words are just hard to believe because they feel uh, too good to be true. But uh, help us as we look at this. What the gospel says: your truth, your goodness, your power to salvation. Jesus, your life, death, and resurrection for sinners. Help us to see ourselves in that mirror. And Jesus to see you more clearly and find you more beautiful. In Christ's name, amen. I'm going to start by reading um, a phrase, a sentence, that will make uh, maybe a lot of you upset. And some of you will agree with it, and you will feel very justified in your frustrations. But I just want you to hear, this is is not an accurate statement. I've just heard it. I've read it. I've even said it in frustration. And I wonder if you've ever felt this. 90% of what we learn in college will not be used in any of our future jobs. (laughs) And the other 10% uh, could have been learned in the first few weeks of doing those jobs. 90% of what you learn in college will not be used in any of your future jobs. And the 10% that would be could have been learned in a couple weeks of on-the-job training. Has anyone sort of felt that before? I have tracked down this quote, I have heard it, I have said it, I have no idea where it comes from, There's no statistics or evidence or research behind that at all. And I don't think it's true. I think engineers in the room or teachers in the room or future nurses in the room would say, no, we sort of need our education to do those things. But we're tempted to believe that and say those words when we feel like what we're learning in our classes has no real-life application. Uh, Maybe you have to take an elective and you have no idea why you have to take this class to get your degree. Maybe there's just something you know what you're going to emphasize in in your future, and it's not this class, but you still have to do it. Or maybe at 2 a.m. when you uh, have not finished that paper, you think, what is this going to matter when I'm 35 or 40 years old working in a profession that has nothing to do with this? In other words, when something is incredibly theoretical, we hit peak frustration when we can't take that theoretical information and put it somewhere in our life where the rubber meets the road. And I wonder sometimes if we can feel that frustration when it comes to the Bible and when it comes to theology. Uh, Last week, we took on a pretty rich and theological text that told us about Jesus. If you were here, we learned that Jesus is 100% man and 100% God. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. We heard about his humiliation, his state of humiliation. He goes to the cross and what he did on the cross that then went to his exaltation at the right hand of God and what he gives to his people in the resurrection. And there was so much more there we didn't have time to get to. But I wonder as we unpack what that theology is, what theology would call Christology and that rich information about Jesus. It's tempting to think, OK, but what does that mean for me now? And I hope we covered some of that. Uh, but Paul is not OK with us just assuming how to apply that to our life. He doubles down in these three verses. And that's why I could have preached it all together, but I really wanted to separate this out. Because what Paul did in those verses last week was telling us what the gospel says about Jesus, who he is and what he's accomplished. Tonight we're going to look at what the gospel says about us. What we find out about ourselves when we step into relationship with Jesus. We really find who we truly are by looking at us at how Jesus looks at his people. And so what does the gospel say about us? I'm going to say three things tonight. Three verses, three things. We find out when we step in the gospel with relationship to Christ, we find out, one, that we are worse than we thought we were. Second, we're going to find we're more loved than we could have dared hope. And third, we are given a life of faith and hope. All right? So we find out we're worse than we thought we were. We're more loved than we could have dared to hope. And then third, we're given a life of faith And hope. Those first two points kind of kind of stole a line from Tim Keller there, but also he stole it from Paul, and I'm preaching Paul, so I'm just taking it. But first, the first thing we learn about ourselves in the gospel, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the good news that Paul is preaching this church, the first thing we need to learn about ourselves is that we are worse than we ever thought we were. Look at where he starts. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, it's a tough place to start. And this is going to be kind of hard to sort of pick out why this is good news and why we actually want to learn this about ourselves. But Paul starts here and notice what this verse is. It's in past tense. You were. He's talking to a group of people who believe the gospel when he's talking about this was you without Jesus. This is what we all look like without Christ. And what is the fruit of that life? It is doing evil. But what's interesting is Paul doesn't say here, look, before you were Christian, you were doing all sorts of bad stuff, and now you're a Christian, you're doing all sorts of good stuff. What he's actually showing is that what state state you were in before Jesus outside of Christ, the fruit of that life is only evil. It's evil works. But that's only the fruit of the problem. That's only the symptom of the disease. There's actually something deeper, something more sinister wrong with us. Because think about it, why do we do evil? Why do we do bad things that hurt us and others around us? It's irrational. Like, why do words leave our mouth where we intentionally try to hurt someone, even someone that we like and love and they're our friends? We objectively know we we shouldn't do that. That's bad for us, it's bad for them, it's bad for the friendship. And yet, in anger, we almost can't help ourselves we do that kind of thing. Why do we continue going towards our addictions even though we know we shouldn't? Oh, Why do we drink when we know we shouldn't drink that much? It's going to kind of ruin not only our day, but it might ruin our life. Why do we continue to go to sort of whatever we're doing to medicate our life? Why is there war in this world? Why is there racism here? Why is there hatred? Why is there abuse? Paul's answer to those questions is not because of apathy. Because we just don't think about it and we just sort of do it. And his answer isn't because outside of Christ, we feel free to do whatever we want. It's Jesus who's restricting us. That's not the way the world thinks either. Because if we really could believe that there's no good and evil in the world so we can do whatever we want, the reason why that logic fails so much is, then why does everyone in the world feel so guilty? Why is there so much talk about anxiety and worry and shame in and out of the church? Paul actually roots... Okay. Where is all this evil coming from? It's rooted in a deeper problem that's inside of us. It's rooted in a hostile and alienated mind and heart. It's a deeper problem. The evil we do is is the fruit of it. But it has a problem with our heart and our mind. The two words he uses to describe a life outside of Christ is alienated and hostile. Alienated. Meaning separated, right? Adam and Eve fell into sin. What happened? They were separated from God. Holy God and sinful man and woman could not dwell together. And that sounds like arbitrary rules, like who made that up? Why is that the rule? But all of us sort of understand why that is the case. Because if there is a perfect and holy God, he has to desire and execute justice. Evil cannot prevail. All of us have a desire for justice in this world. God is the only one who's perfect and holy and can actually do it. Sin must be paid for. It was actually an act of mercy for him to separate man and woman. If they didn't die that day, they continued living on. But that is all of us outside of Jesus. We are alienated and separated from God. And here's what happens. In alienation comes desperation. When we are alone, we are forced to look at what was ahead of us, look at this world, look at our life and say, okay, now it's all on me to fix my life and fix my problems and get the life of my dreams. And when we're alone in that, we become our own God. When we become our own God, we will do pretty horrifying things to get what we're looking for. Alienation also has an aspect of being alone. And I say shame and sin grow best in the dark. I think that's why we do the worst things we ever do when we're alone and we think no one will find out. Things we don't want to do. Things we know we shouldn't, that will harm us. But in secrecy and darkness, where we think maybe no one will find out, maybe no consequences will come from this, that's where it's most simple. Alienated. Separated. Our own God, no matter how long of that road we go down, we will all find out we are terrible at being our own gods. We are terrible at managing our own lives. But the second word he uses, it, it's way worse, is that we are also hostile in mind. And hearts. Now this is worse because alienation kind of feels like hey, we're separated, we're on our own, we're trying to make our own way and figure this out. But hostile, it could be translated in, in enmity with God, being enemies with God. I Meaning the things that we do that are contrary to how we were made to live, they're not just like apathetic choices. They're not just things that we just like feel like would be good to do. Paul actually says if you dig deep enough, it's actually a rebellion against God himself. We're not just sinning against others, we're sinning against him, the maker, the orderer of this universe. And that sounds kind of harsh, but like, think about it, like this makes so much more sense in a relationship, doesn't it? That our behavior reveals the heart towards that person. I think about when I, um, when I drop the ball as a husband, which occasionally happens every now and then. Um, my wife is hurt by that, not so much by what I did. But how what I did reveals my heart towards her. If she asked me to pick up the Walmart pickup order, right? Pretty simple. just drive to Walmart, open the trunk. They put it in. I drive it home. And she asked me to do that. And I said, yeah, I would love to do that. I'm your husband. I love you. I'm going to serve my family in this way. I got it. And I go about my day. And I get distracted. I get busy. I totally forget. And I come home exhausted. And April says, where is the groceries?" And my reaction is probably a deep sigh, throwing my head back, saying, I forgot, do we really have to deal with that tonight? What is that? How does that hurt April? It's not so much that we don't have groceries. That's a problem that we've got to figure out, right? Actually, what hurts April is that I forgot to do something because I got distracted with things that I thought were important, which tells her to some degree that what she asked me to do wasn't important. That underneath that could be a heart that says, she's not the most important person in my life. That deeply can hurt her. When she asks me to stop doing something. I don't know if y'all do this. I have like, um, there's a dirty clothes and there's like hanging clothes. And then there's like a pile in the middle of those two things. They're like, not. Nah, I can't declare them dirty, but they're certainly not clean. And they just kind of stay there forever. That hit home way more than I thought. I feel very loved and known and seen. And she'll tell me, are those dirty or clean? And I'll like I'll pick them up, and I don't, even though I tell her I will. She's not annoyed with the clothes. It's a little bit of, I told you I would. And evidence of my love for her would be that I would actually do it, and maybe not doing it reveals that I don't think what she's asking me to do is that important. Look, outside of God, on our own, alienated and hostile, we will attack anything that gets in the way of what we want in life. We will see that as an enemy. We will even see God and his law and his word as an enemy, something between me and what I want. Paul paints a devastating picture. We are worse than we think we are. It's not just arbitrary breaking of rules. We don't just mess up every now and then. He is painting a picture of a depraved human. And so what what do we do with this? I've depressed the room now. But why is this good news to think about? Why should we, whether we're Christians or not, why actually should we think about this? Because the gospel says that Jesus is in the business of saving people like that. That actually, as we look at our sin more and more and more, Jesus and his grace becomes more and more beautiful. And there's actually a freedom in this, right? And I I hope you see this. There is a freedom in naming your mess and your sin and your failures and your shame and your brokenness. Because aren't, aren't we all tired of trying to be perfect? Aren't we all tired trying to cover it up of exiting the hamster wheel or the rat race or whatever it feels like we're trying to keep up with and to actually name? You know what? Actually, everything's a mess, even though it might look good out there. But that's only freeing if we have somewhere to go with all of that mess. If we have somewhere to go with that sin and shame. And the second person the Trinity, the son of God who took on flesh, is the one who invites vile and broken and enemies of himself to himself to shower them with grace and forgiveness. And that grace and forgiveness becomes so much bigger, so much more beautiful when we deeply understand our hearts and our need of them. This is what repentance becomes a beautiful word. I hate that the word like repent has become like a hate thing that's on a sign and being yelled. It's a beautiful word. Why? It is an invitation for sinners to come and bring nothing. They have nothing but our sin in our hands, and even our good works are tattered with self righteousness and pride and sin. We bring nothing to Him. And what do we hear from Jesus when we bring that to Him? Love and forgiveness and acceptance. Repentance is a beautiful word that we have somewhere to go with this mess. This evil. Uh, D.L. Moody was a um, famous evangelist back in the 19th century. And he tells a story of his sister who had a little boy who was um, like kind of a troublemaker. And so one morning, this little boy said something nasty to his mother. And D.L. Moody never actually said what it was. But it was bad enough that the parents were concerned that this five-year-old said this to his mother. And they said, you need to ask for forgiveness. And the little boy said, No. So the parents said, You have to ask for forgiveness right now, or we're going to send you back to bed. And the little boy said, Fine. And so he puts on his pajamas and he goes back to bed. It was nine in the morning. And so they thought, Eventually he'll come out and he doesn't want to stay in bed. He'll get bored. That boy stayed in his bed for 36 hours. You have to respect it, right? Like, <laughs> when my kids do stuff like that, I'm like, I'm angry at you, but like, I kind of respect you. That's amazing. They fed him, of course. They would go in his room every few hours and ask him, please, just ask forgiveness. You have to do this. And he said, no. And he'd be crying, and they could tell, they, they, they could tell he was guilty, and he was embarrassed, and he just, but he wouldn't say those words. And so eventually the mother, just kind of overwhelmed with concern, goes into the room and gets on her knees in front of him and sees tears in his eyes. And says, will you please ask forgiveness? I will give it to you. And the boy said, no. So the mother says, okay, just say this. Mom said, Mom, for, for, give, give, me, me. And as soon as he said that, me, the mom smiled and opened her arms and embraced her son and said, of course I forgive you. I love you. And the little boy jumped out of bed with a smile on his face, pumped that he did that. And then looked at his mother and says, can I do that again to dad? And the mother takes him to his dad and he asks for forgiveness and the dad opens his arms and says, of course I forgive you. I love you. Right? How much do you relate to that little boy? And in, in, in our stubbornness, like, that we just don't want to admit that we need anything or that we did anything or that we certainly need forgiveness. But then how beautiful was it when he experienced that love and acceptance that he couldn't wait to do it again? Because whatever we have, wherever we are, Jesus loves to hear us say the words, forgive me. Because he loves to say the words, I forgive you and I love you. Do we see our sin clearly? When we start with bad news. We have to know the bad news before the good news becomes good. But do we see that we're worse than we think we are? But Jesus is probably better than we could imagine. First news, we're worse than we think. But Jesus has more grace than sin in us. But then secondly, the second thing we find out about ourselves in the gospel is that we are more loved than we can ever dare to hope. All right, so what does Jesus do for these people? that was past tense, what is now the present tense? And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he, Jesus, has now reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. What did Jesus come to do for these people that were his enemies? that were hostile, that were alienated, separated under the wrath of God. We talked about it last week, that God himself came in the flesh to die in their place. The forgiveness of sins comes from Jesus' sacrifice. But here's what we need to see. That he did not just come to forgive sins. He came to reconcile these enemies of God with God himself. It was a relationship being restored that Jesus came for And we need to see forgiveness is only half the good news of the gospel. The Christian gospel is not simply Jesus forgives us for our sins. That actually would not be enough. If we're just forgiven our debt, it brings us to zero. But what's required of God is is utter perfection, is utter holiness. So even if we were at zero, we could not go the rest of the way to deserve his presence. But Jesus doesn't get us halfway there. Jesus gets his people all the way there. Because what does he do? He presents us holy and blameless and above reproach. The Colossians weren't holy and blameless and above reproach. I'm not holy and blameless and above reproach. You are not that. Who is that? It's Jesus. And so here is the gospel: that Jesus came to die for the forgiveness of sins and raised a new life. And in that exchange, it wasn't just our sin going to him, it was his righteousness coming to us. It was his name being put on his people. It was his life being accredited, like a a bank account being accredited to us. That when God looks at his people, he does not see their sin and shame. He sees Jesus' perfect life. He presents us holy and blameless because Jesus is holy and blameless. He tells us who we are by putting his own name on his people. Would you put your name on a people that were alienated and hostile? I don't think we would do it. But Jesus does it. That we actually, in the gospel, can say we're sons and daughters of God. Not because we've done anything, but because Jesus has done it for us. Do you know how that would change the way we live if we truly believed that every second of our day? And in the gospel, he sees me as a son. His name's upon me. I have a friend, in, um, I had a friend in college, still my friend. He listens to the podcast. I did not get permission for this story, so we're going to see how this works out. His name is Hub, H-U-B. And um, Hub uh, was one of my first friends I met in college. He lived across the hall from me in my dorm. And just a larger than life type personality. Like everyone loved Hub. Went to the University of South Carolina. Everyone from every part of campus knew him. Uh, He threw great parties. He was the biggest uh, uh, South Carolina Gamecock fan I've ever met, which means he lives a life of misery. (laughs) But he was really fun in college. And I remember one night we were all hanging out And um, the conversation went to SAT scores, and who got what, which is what cool people do in college. We had out and talk (laughs) about And we kind of went around and shared, and made fun of each other, and, and Hub didn't answer. And after a while, someone asked like, Hub, what'd you get on the SAT? And he laughed, and he goes, oh dude, I bombed it. I took it once, it wasn't even four digits, it wasn't good. And we sort of laughed about it, and then next question was, well did you get a good GPA in high school? And he said, oh, no, barely passed. And I'm not saying South Carolina's Harvard, but there are some standards that need to be met to be admitted to the University of South Carolina. And so I asked him, how did you get into college, though? And he said, oh, it was pretty easy. I just got a letter of recommendation. The next question is from who? He said, I got a letter of recommendation from Darla Moore. Now, I know the silence of this room. No one knows who Darla Moore is, but... If you were a student at the University of South Carolina, you would know that the name of the business school at the University of South Carolina is the Darla Moore School of Business. You would also know she's on the Board of Trustees. She's given over $150 million to the University of South Carolina, and she's the currently eighth richest woman in the world. She took over her husband's company that was worth a couple million dollars and turned it into a multi-billion dollar corporation. So get this. My friend Ho, with terrible grades and terrible SAT score, applies to this school. And the first page they see, okay, SAT score, he's not getting in. Grades, even worse, not coming in. Flip the page. And there's a letterhead with Darla Moore's name on it. Her signature at the bottom. And somewhere in the middle says, let him in. <laughs> and as soon as that person see that, he would flip the page. Like, oh, he's in. Corner dorm, best parking spot, gets to register for classes. For, like, whatever he wants, he gets. And my friend, huh, for four years, walked around like he owned that campus. <laughs> because he was there with a name upon him of the woman who quite literally did own that campus. Do you see, in the gospel, Jesus puts his name on us. He's not worth 150 million dollars. His name isn't on a business building. He's the creator of the universe. And in the gospel, when we come to him bringing nothing but our sin, he bestows upon us sonship and the ability to be daughters of the king of the universe. And he looks at us with no less than love of that. Do you see how that's how you change your heart? Seeing yourself how Jesus sees you. And then living out that new identity in the world wherever you go. Looking more and more like a son and daughter of God. But not to prove anything. Not to earn anything. But it's already been given to you. It's the name that's upon you. Revelation actually says that his name will be on our foreheads. I don't think that's literal. But I think it's the reality that we will never forget who we belong to in the new heavens and the new earth, though we forget that today. Here's a question. Who do you let tell you who you are? And who do you let tell you if you're lovable or not? Who do we let tell us we're lovable. Is it our behavior? If we're good enough and everyone thinks we're good enough, then maybe we are good enough and we're lovable. Is it our grades and what we achieve for ourselves that tells us we're worth something and we're okay? Is it our family? Is it our friends? Is it the world? What is the voice telling you you're worth? It's going to pale in comparison to the king whose words spoke the world into existence. Do you see in the gospel We are loved more than we could ever know. It's not just his sacrifice. It's what he bestows upon his people. It's incredible for people like us. So we're worse than we think, but the good news is we're more loved than we could ever know in the gospel. But then third, we are given a life of faith and hope. Okay, Paul now goes to say, okay, now what? That's great. We were bad. Now we have Jesus' name, and we're good. So now what do we do? This is what he says. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you've heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under the heavens, of which I, Paul, became a minister. All right, what do we do with this? Because that's a big if there, isn't it? If you continue in the faith. Does this mean that we can lose this gospel if we're in it? Uh, does this mean we can lose the name of Jesus if we get out of line? No. This is a warning and a promise. And a warning comes from people who are loved. What he, remember what he was talking to? He was talking to a church that's being told another gospel. He's talking to a church that knows the gospel of Jesus, but there's new teachers coming in that are saying things like, Look, it's awesome you have Jesus, but you need something else. It's Jesus plus these extra works you have to do to prove that you're worthy. It's Jesus plus these experiences you have to have. It's Jesus plus this secret knowledge that only we have. They're being told this other gospel. And what is Paul saying here? Don't abandon the one that you've heard. You've only begun to scratch the surface of this Jesus, you've only begun to crack at the top of the iceberg of the benefits that come from him. Actually, as one commentator said I was reading this week, it's as if Paul is saying, don't abandon the beautiful gospel that you've already heard. And I know that you won't, because once it has its grip on you, even you can't leave. Because isn't it interesting that Paul says, continue if you continue in the faith. and What faith is that is the faith in Christ. It's the faith from Christ. It's the hope that we have stored in heaven. In other words, what Paul is saying, it's not faith in yourself, it's not hope in yourself. It is clinging to Jesus to not look for anything else because all that you need, all that you're looking for is found in Him. And as we live a life of clinging to Jesus, here's what that's going to actually look like. He uses two words: stable and steadfast. I love Paul never has a rosy picture of the Christian life. The desire to be stable means you live in an unstable world. The push to be steadfast means that you're going to be tempted to walk away. It's going to feel hard. But where does that stability and steadfastness come from? It comes from the stability of Christ reconciling us to God. And the steadfast love of God for his people. Like, Do we see a life of following Jesus as going deeper, more deeper into him? of knowing him more, of running to him in our sin, of hating sin and loving him more and more and more. But Paul doesn't say only if you continue to do a bunch of good things. That would just be replacing our evil deeds with good. He wants to go to the heart to have a changed heart that the fruit of your life will look different. The fruit of your life won't look like evil deeds. The fruit of your life will look like the fruit of the spirit. In other words, you'll begin to look more like Jesus. As you fall more in love with him. But it's not always going to feel easy. Um, You're going to hear this tonight. And maybe you've heard it a million times before. Maybe you know all of this. And you're still going to say, I still don't feel like the identity that Jesus has given me. And I get that. But I wonder if this illustration from Martin Luther will help. Martin Luther the reformer. I'm stealing it from him. He's been dead 500 years. He's going to be okay he used to say, imagine a sick patient, mortally sick, knowing he's going to die. And a doctor comes in, takes him on as a patient, and diagnoses the disease. I know what you have, and I have the cure. And he gives him the medication. And the patient takes the medication, the doctor's confident, you're cured, you're good. But what would the patient say when he hears that? He would say, I don't feel cured. I still feel sick. I still can't get out of bed. I still have a cough. I still have whatever it is. How can you say I'm cured? But from the doctor's perspective, he knows that as soon as that medicine passed those lips and into the system, this patient's cured. There's nowhere else he's going to go. There's nowhere other direction this can turn. So Luther says this, so it is with our life in Christ. Christ is the medication. We are healed in him. But in this world, on this side of eternity, we will still feel sick. We will still feel the remnant and remains of sin, but the process of becoming pure and holy is already underway and its future completion is certain. Because, Martin Luther says, Christ never fails. Do you see that the walk with Christ is a life of faith and hope? Growing deeper in our faith, dependency upon Jesus and the hope of his one day, someday, day to come to bring his work to completion. That it's not a hope in ourselves. But do you see that that's the power? That's the cure? More dependency upon Jesus? That's our fight against sin? That it's Jesus in us, a power, a new power within us that will not stop until he has completed and made his people holy and lovely and blameless before his presence? And that the rest that we get from the hamster wheel and the rest we find in Jesus, that that's our life purpose, to know him more and more and more. And as we do that, we begin to look more and more like him. New fruit, a new life. But it's a long journey. And as my former pastor used to say, Sinclair Ferguson, it takes your whole life to give your whole life to Christ. But he's worth it. Because in the end, he finishes his work. Do we see ourselves the way God sees us? There's bad news in that. But it pales in comparison to the good news. We pray. Father in heaven, oh Lord, we so often want to skip that first step, but we don't really want to look into our hearts because we're nervous about what we see. Oh, we are really good at hiding our sin. Uh, we're really good at hiding um, the parts of us we don't really want to see or anyone else to see. We're good at hiding behind um, just a phony identity that we put out because we feel like phonies, at least I do. But Lord, help us do the deep heart work. Show us our sin. That we may run to you, Jesus, and find you more beautiful. Uh, may we be really good at running to you, Jesus, knowing that we have your open arms. Uh, Lord, we pray that we continue in the faith. Uh, that we don't look for another gospel. We don't look for another hope. We don't look for another faith. But know, Jesus, that you will bring your work to completion. You will make this world right. You will make us new. Help us to believe that, to believe that for ourselves, and to walk around this campus and this world knowing that Jesus, if we're in you, we're a child of the King. We pray this all in Jesus' name, Amen. Let's stand and sing together. We're saying, "Jesus, I my cross."